Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Historical Fiction with Zach Twomley Today I'm thrilled to welcome back Zach Twomley, host of the history podcast When Diplomacy Fails and the author of three books. A Matter of Honour, Britain in the First World War, For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War, and now, Matchlock and the Embassy, a piece of historical fiction set during the Thirty Years' War. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Samuel, and thank you for that very precise introduction. I really appreciate it. (laughs) So tell us about this book. Well, this is really, it's kind of like my love letter to the Thirty Years' War, you could say. I've been obsessed with this conflict since like 2013 when I first tried to do it for the podcast, and I've always loved writing fiction, so the two things kind of collided together in a fantastically messy but also hopefully fun read at the same time, but... I kind of like, it's kind of like pandemic syndrome, isn't it? You kind of are like, well, I really have wanted to do this for so long. And I kind of just gave myself permission to start writing because for so long I was like, well, I can't do it. I'm, I'm not an author. I'm a, I'm a historian slash podcaster thing. So I don't know. I just, it took me quite a while to actually feel like I could write it. And I think the, the third round of lockdown over in Ireland was a pretty good persuader in, in that. So I thought, well, I've got this spare time. I basically can't go outside. So let's see if I can actually do this. And, Almost as soon as I started, I was like, okay, I'm really enjoying this now. So it then became a a case of even if this bombs and no one likes it, at least I'm having a great time. And yeah, it's it's been out since the middle of September and the feedback's been really good and the the sales have been quite consistent. So I'm very, very happy with it. And there's many more books to come. See, that is good to hear because I'm a few chapters into it. I'm thinking I'm on chapter six and it's fantastic it's really gripping from like the first page i think the first thing shows uh the main character matthew Locke, and he's in the middle of this dramatic situation straight away there's no it's not slow to start it's like immediate and it hooked me immediately so i'm very happy to know that there's going to be more 
Oh yeah, 100%. I'm so glad you said that about being hooked because hooking people in, like, oh, they always talk about, like, the hook in fiction. And I have, like, it's the same thing with academia or with podcasting and now with fiction. I had to teach myself so many things, so many things. <laughs> so it's really been an education in the last few months. I started that book at the end of April and from the 24th of April, when I first banged out the first few words to 15th of September. That's how long it took. Now, some, in some cases, it takes people like six years or something to write their first book. I think I just had a case of the, the COVID crazies or something and I just sat there hammering at the keyboard. But I'm so glad you and you're, you're enjoying it. That, that means a lot. Thank you. So the book is set during the Thirty Years' War. Now, most listeners of Pax Britannica will have heard our chat about the Thirty Years' War last year. Speaking of which, this is apparently an anniversary thing we're doing now. You will release a book every year, and I'll have you on to talk <laughs> about it. But for those who aren't aware of the Thirty Years' War, could you briefly sum up what was the Thirty Years' War, why did it break out, and what happened, and where does Matthew Locke, the main character of your book, fit into it? Okay, well, uh, let me let me deal with those questions as best as I can. Well, simply put, the Thirty Years' War was a conflict, and it lasted from 1618 to 1648. Now, you'll be unsurprised to learn that in a conflict lasting three decades, it wasn't just the same countries battering each other over and over again. So the cast of countries and, and actors kind of changed quite a lot uh, over the course of, of the 30 years. So, and because of that, it's kind of easier to kind of break it into different phases. The phase that we probably all think of with Gustavus Adolphus, who's arguably the most famous actor in this conflict. If people haven't heard of the Thirty Years' War, they may have heard of Gustavus Adolphus. And uh, he only enters the conflict really in its midway point. So before that, a whole load of other stuff happened. And to cut a long story short, it basically involved the Habsburg dynasty winning an awful lot. You had the to the actual breakout of the conflict as well. It's kind of hard to explain unless we actually explain how the Holy Roman Empire works. But if you're cringing right now, don't worry because I've done this so many times at this point <laughs> that uh, it doesn't re- it doesn't even phase me anymore. So here we go: the Holy Roman Empire and how this fits into the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. Basically, Frederick of the Palatinate, so kind of think of a guy ruling along the the Rhineland area of Germany today, he was what was called an elector, which meant that he was one of seven people who got to choose who the next Holy Roman Emperor would be, which is grand. But in the course of the Reformation, the Holy Roman Empire basically gets split along religious lines. So by 1618, you have a situation where there's three Protestant electors and four Catholic electors. One of those Catholic electors was the King of Bohemia, who was also the generally tended to be the Holy Roman Emperor. And the Habsburgs had all of this stuff in their pocket, and they'd been in this position since 1438. That was the first time you had a Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. And they've kind of they kind of come to look at the seat and the office and all that power as their right. And even if that wasn't the case, pretty much by virtue of them being there for so long, they had the power, they had the authority to fight against anyone who would really challenge that monopoly. And you could probably see where this is going. So the Bohemian crown being one really important electoral seat... That meant that when the Bohemians rebelled for the third time in a decade by 1618, when they rebelled and threw the Habsburgs out the window in the defenestration of Prague, that was a more important deal than it might first appear because 
It wasn't just rebels making trouble. By doing that, and then a year or so later, by deposing the Habsburg king and trying to find another one, they were upsetting the electoral balance of the Holy Roman Emperor, of the Holy Roman Empire, excuse me. So then, when they looked for a replacement, they offered it to Frederick, that guy in the Rhineland we met at the start, who was also a Protestant. Now, Frederick thought about it for a while, but eventually he went for it, because he thought he'd have all this help. As a result, then, you had a nightmare scenario for the Habsburgs, where Protestants held four seats. So there there was one in Brandenburg, Prussia, there was one in Saxony, or, yeah, there was one in Brandenburg, there was one in Saxony, there was one in the Rhineland, where Frederick was, and now there was also a Protestant in Bohemia. So because the Habsburgs couldn't allow this, they basically went to war with Frederick and with the Bohemians. And that's the initial kind of phase of the conflict. It doesn't go very well for Frederick. The Habsburgs are triumphant. And by the mid-1620s, the Habsburgs seem almost too powerful for their own good, and the Danes intervene. And that's when you have the Danish phase that lasts until, like, 1629. And that ends with the Danes being defeated and the Habsburgs being really, really triumphant but too triumphant for their own good, because the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II, he implements what's called the Edict of Restitution, which tries to set the religious clock of Europe back to the 1550s. The details aren't that important now, but what is good to know is that this kind of energized the anti-Hausberg coalition that had been building for a while, and this is when the Swedes get involved. And due to a few poor decisions on the Emperor Ferdinand's part, the empire is more vulnerable than it would have been, and the Swedes have tremendous success until their leader, King Gustavus Adolphus, falls in battle in 1632. And then a few years later, when the Swedes are kind of pushed back more and defeated by the Habsburgs, then the French intervene in 1635. And then from 1635 to 1648, you basically have the Habsburgs gradually getting whittled down by an alliance of the Swedes, the French, and the Dutch. And then it ends in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia and religious war never happens again and everyone lives happily ever after. That is a fantastic summary of, of an incredibly complex and complicated conflict. <laughs> and if anyone's interested in hearing more, I would suggest either reading For God of the Devil, which is Zach's book, or listening to the When Diplomacy Fails series. Either one on the Thirty Years War because Zach's done it twice. The more recent one is much more detailed. Much more detailed. Yeah, the the first one I did from 2013 to 14 was like 18 episodes, and they were like an hour long each. And now I'm on episode 43. Now, they're only half an hour long each, but I know there's about 82 episodes altogether. Well, because I've written them already, that's how I know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to break the fourth wall. But yeah, that's it's it's very, very detailed. But also very interesting, because we had to look at the actual... Like, that summary I gave you there, it was really the Sparknotes version... There's so many fascinating details and and events and characters and all that I had to just skim over. But yeah, we cover it in more detail in the 30 Years War podcast we have. So when does, going back to the book, when does Matthew Locke get involved in the 30 Years War? Yeah, Matthew Locke, he's in an interesting situation because he's from Dorset and he is of a family that is fairly kind of mindful of European relations, shall we say, because his father was a a statesman, a diplomat, and he got basically knighted for his role in brokering the peace, well, the temporary peace between the Spanish and the Dutch in 1609. So that should give you an idea of how connected to kind of European diplomacy 
uh, the Locke family is. So Sir Charles Locke always makes sure that his son is well-versed in kind of European politics and that kind of thing. So even though Matthew Locke only lands in Europe in 1622, he has a reasonably good grasp of the major actors. He knows that Emperor Ferdinand II is of the Habsburgs, and he knows that the Habsburgs are fighting against what was at that point in 1622, the kind of uh, midway point of Frederick's anti-Habsburg crusade, where Frederick had to basically rely on several fairly unscrupulous and not very reliable mercenaries and, and military princes and that kind of thing. So that's where the conflict is in 1622. And if you can think back what I said, I think I said before that this is book one of what I intend to be 24. And you can see if I have one book every year, I will more than make up for the length of the Thirty Years' War. I should be able to theoretically cover each year of it through Matthew Locke's eyes. And that's very much the plan. And the reason why I put him as a kind of a... He's, as as the name of it, the book, Matchlock and the Embassy, suggests... Matthew Locke is really a, a, an expert with the Matchlock musket, but he's also a privileged graduate of a university, so he has that grounding in diplomacy. And the kind of career Matthew Locke was being set up for, the so-called soldier statesman, was actually not that uncommon in the early 1600s. Someone who could negotiate contributions for the army, for example, but also lead that army into battle. So that's the kind of versatility Matthew Locke has. And because of that, he can be in all these important places and I can just slot him into the room where Cardinal Richelieu is making the latest deal with the Swedes, that kind of thing. I was going to ask about the soldier statesman thing because that was a term I hadn't come across before. And I wasn't sure whether that was an invention of yourself or if that was based on history. Is that based on history? You see, the thing is, I feel like I have seen it before, but it's kind of like... I've kind of taken it and kind of run with it myself because a lot of people I've come across, like a lot of historical figures who you think of as kind of mercenaries, and we wanted to talk about mercenaries before, but a lot of mercenaries I've come across, whether they're from, and mostly would be from the British Isles, they tended to do double duty in that regard. They tended to not just restrict their activities to the battlefield. If they were in command of men, they had to also negotiate on behalf of those men. A lot of the time they had to negotiate for their pay because they'd been left high and dry, but they also had to negotiate with any kind of towns or settlements they came across. So there's diplomacy on that micro level as well. And obviously not all soldier statesmen would graduate to the level of, you know, like dealing between major states, but Matthew Locke manages it. No spoilers, obviously. Sure. But I'm imagining that Locke's going to be meeting some pretty famous historical figures. You mentioned Cardinal Richelieu. Who else do you have in mind him meeting? Well, the great thing about writing historical fiction is you really can pick and choose your kind of favourite moments. And I found that as I've been planning the books far into the future, the more the more exciting scenarios I've been placed in. And yes, Cardinal Richelieu will definitely be making an appearance, but I really want Gustavus Adolphus to as well, because he's not really depicted all that commonly in, uh, certainly not in literature, but any kind of accounts we do have of him are very romanticized and everything else. So I think it'd be really interesting for that. I'd also like to have the quote-unquote bad guys of the story, some of the Habsburgs being depicted, maybe Maximilian of Bavaria, 
it would be interesting to depict him because he survived the entirety of the Thirty Years' War. He was one of only a few people who did, and he was the Emperor's paymaster pretty much the entire time. And by the end of the conflict, he had brought Bavaria to a really impressive stage in its existence. He, I mentioned at the start of this interview that there was seven electors in the Holy Roman Empire. Well, he managed to leverage his importance to the Emperor and transform Bavaria into the eighth electorate of the Holy Roman Empire. So that was pretty impressive work from Maximilian of Bavaria, and I think he deserves to be depicted as well. I certainly want to look at Wallenstein, Albrecht of Wallenstein as well, and the Swedish Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna, who was also someone fortunate to survive the entire length of the conflict, which to me is incredible. I don't know how they managed that. But yeah, <laughs> so many, so many contenders. The list is long and is still growing, let's just say. I really hope that uh, Matthew Locke meets Alexander Leslie, who is yes. one of my favourite figures from this time period. Because he's also someone who survives not just the Thirty Years' War, but also the British Civil Wars as well. Yeah, and you know, this feels bad because we just said no spoilers, but another individual Matthew Locke meets is Captain Robert Monroe. And you may know him from one of the most famous accounts, the most famous first-hand accounts of the Thirty Years' War, uh, McKay's Regiment of Scots or something. It was released in 1626, and it, uh, or that's when he begins his service in 1626, and it's kind of a very comprehensive account of his service. And Captain Monroe was around until I think he died in 1680, so there's so many figures like that, and they really do deserve to be uh, seen on a, on a grander stage than they have been, I think. I think that helps ground the... Obviously, Matthew Locke is an invention, but you're not creating the concept of this professional soldier who was around for the whole period, who is going to meet all these influential and important people, because that happened. It's just that you're not making the story around one of those individuals, you're inventing your own, who then gets to get involved with them. Yeah, and I I really appreciate you for noticing that because I really it was so important to me that it was grounded in the history because at the end of the day I'm doing this because yes I find it really fun but I also want a quote unquote mainstream audience to find the Thirty Years War and really fall in love with it. I want to do for the Thirty Years War what Bernard Cornwell did for the Napoleonic Wars and get people who might not know anything about this conflict to explore it and see that it's actually not that complex and there's some incredible stories and characters in it. So, yeah, I, the the history, linking it to the history and keeping it grounded, that's something I will always be doing and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to further historical grounding in the future. It's interesting you bring up that desire to make the Thirty Years' War more publicly known because we talked about this last last time you were on as well the idea that the 30 years war deserves and needs something like you know a historical yeah. fiction series mm-hmm. and lo and behold here you are beginning it and i'm super excited to see where it goes <laughs> thank you yeah I, I because there was this kind of gap there in the market and i joked that maybe there'll be a reason for that gap maybe i'll be just like get halfway through this and be like oh dear so this is why no one's done this before but <laughs> i've i've waited this deep into the 30 years war chasm as is and i'm still standing so 
as far as I'm concerned, there's plenty of material here for a historical fiction series. I mean, honestly, Samuel, even if you took out the fiction elements and covered this conflict in a kind of like dramatic way, uh, just even just personifying the characters and, and not making anything up, basically, even if you did that, I still think it would make a really compelling account. And it, it just feels sometimes like this was written for a film, even though it's actual history. I'm not going to be disagreeing with you on that because uh, <laughs> uh, the Thirty Years' War is just incredibly fascinating, and it's on yeah. such a scale that is just hard to wrap your head around until at least the I don't know, the 20th century, maybe the 19th century, in terms of the scale of the armies, of the of the violence, of the destruction. It's it's a very modern war. Yeah, and uh, it's it's been called the first modern war, but I think a big reason for that is because. If you look at how armies were fighting, say, in like the 1610s versus how they were fighting by the 1650s even, there is a huge change in how artillery is used, how drill muskets are used. The Spanish Tercio way of fighting basically vanishes in that space of time. And all of these changes, like, they're born out over the course of three decades. It's what I like to call a very kind of bloody laboratory of the battlefield where they had so many opportunities purely by virtue of the fact that they were at war for so long they had all these chances to see what would work and what didn't and they also learned new ways of siege warfare and how to raise the walls and all like so many developments even on just the military side before we even start thinking about the impact it had on the map of europe where did you come up with the idea for Matthew Locke as a protagonist. What was your inspiration for for this series? I've mentioned Richard Sharp already, and I've mentioned Bernard Cornwell, but really, it's that that experience of even like inventing any kind of character, really, and seeing history through their eyes. That to me was fascinating, and I really wanted to replicate that when I was trying to kind of come up with the idea for what Matthew Locke would look like and how he would behave and everything. I did that trope where a lot of fiction authors do, I'm sure, where they kind of base the person on their own moral values and and they they make them nice. They don't make them like, uh, you know, they make them a nice person to be around because you don't want to make your protagonist not very likable. And I find that basing them on kind of how your morals, how you see the world, it does help you write them going forward. And it also helps you think how you would actually make them respond, because how would I respond in these situations? But then saying that, I also wanted to make him a little bit more kind of, shall we say, prepared for war than I am. So that's why I added in the, the military aspects that's why I made him six foot four or something. So there's a bit of Jack Reacher in there as well. <laughs> it's kind of like multiple inspirations. I had this. I had this idea when I was reading. Uh, I can't remember which Jack Reacher book it was, but just the satisfaction of seeing him like get rid of like evil, for lack of a better term, in the world, and do it in such a like a, a it's so satisfying to see <laughs> to see this enormous man like triumph over these absolute, you know. So I, I kind of wanted to replicate that, but in a historical setting as well. And what I decided to come to was in the kind of character development of Matthew Locke, there'll be certain stages 
of his life where, spoiler, things will happen and he'll see things differently or he'll change or he'll like, you know, like how how else do you do a character arc? You start at the beginning and see how he ends up. So, and I realize this answer is very rambly at this point, but really it kind of just, when you're making a character that you have to stick with for 24 books, you need to be sure from the very beginning that he's someone you want to actually write uh, for 24 books. So, I maybe you could say he's he's kind of a little bit like me but you could also say that he's very much of the era and grounding him in that era getting the getting him going for example to like university or something or or seriously being a, a huge professional with the with the matchlock musket and going through the drill and everything like that and increasing the fire rate and all like all that stuff was really really appealing to me so I'd say to to answer your question in a in a more comprehensive way, the inspiration for Matthew Locke's character came from several varied sources. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go about getting the book published? You're a, you published independently? Yeah, I did, and it's been a, again. It's something I really had to teach myself how to do, but it was very worthwhile. And this is my first time doing it. For my other two books, I was published by a kind of what they call small press, and that was fine, but I just think when it comes down to something that... It's one thing to write non-fiction, to tell a story of something that already happened. But when you have your own story and you're making your, your own rules about how like your characters behave, and really it's your intellectual property, I wanted to be like 100% mine. And really, I found out about self-publishing before I found out about Matchlock. So I knew from really the start of the process like I knew that I was making this to be self-published and let me tell you it's it is a long process and there is a lot of rungs to the self-publishing ladder before like so many times making this book I thought okay I'm done now or okay I've learned everything there is to learn now and then something else will happen there'll be another thing you have to learn and you'll I don't know if you ever get this feeling where you get this sense of dread in your stomach where you're like, oh, I can't do this. This is just too much. I can't. Like, how many things do I have to know before I can actually publish? And I think maybe 2019 Zach would have been like he would have quit sooner. But because I knew that I could do it and because I knew that I so badly wanted to do it, like my whole goal was to have a novel published before I'm 30 and I'm 30 at the end of October, so time was a wasting, and I couldn't, I couldn't really just give up having come so far. And yeah, I, I knew that I wanted basically, if I was going to put in all the effort, I wanted, for lack of a better term, all the money. And it was a lot of effort. Really, the best part of this process for me is writing the darn thing, but arguably the worst is everything that comes after, whether it's the promoting or the organization or anything like that. But having said that, I think us podcasters come from a special position in that regard because not only do we have our own listeners there as a kind of good support base to, to to tell the news about the book to, but we also have the experience of kind of running our own thing and like marketing that in its own way and being vocal for our own work and our intellectual property in the podcasting sphere. And it's always been very important to me that When Diplomacy Fails is like not under any kind of like obligation it's not owned by any third third parties or anything like that it doesn't have to tow any line and i'm not saying that that's what you'd have to do in fiction but again 
if I'm putting all that effort in, I want the returns. And I want if someone eh, this is in my in my dreamland in in a few years time when I'm on book 15 or whatever, if I get any of those magical film or TV offers for turning Matchlock into a TV series or what have you, I want to be the person who's front and center negotiating that and learning about how that works and everything. I don't want someone, I don't want HBO to ruin it on me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm thinking that far ahead and I know that's definitely premature because it's the first book for crying out loud. But uh, like that should give you an idea of how, like I couldn't do it in a traditionally published way because it's almost like I care too much about it to let anyone else anywhere near it, uh, whether that's creatively or administratively. Yeah, I, I do think sometimes when I'm like imagining which like actors should play which characters <laughs> in the series, I think I'm probably getting too far ahead then, but I mean Well now I've got to ask, who would play Matthew Locke? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I've actually got like a, a list of several uh different people and there's a few I actually I'm fortunate to know some people in the kind of like independent kind of film circuit too, so I have this like romantic idea of I sweep in on this limousine and I say to these (laughs) independent actors, guess what, guys? Knowing me has its perks and now you get to be in Matchlock and it's your big break and everything. And yeah, I mean, certainly like for like villains is really like always really fun to cast villains. Oh, it's got to be, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like, looking at different characters and I mean, you haven't finished the book yet and I don't want to spoil it for you at all, but like, when you come across certain characters, you'd be like, oh, yeah, they, they'd be like, there's certain actors that just jump to your mind when you meet like the likes of like Georg von Sam or Diego de la Barga or that kind of thing. Like, you'll really be like, Ooh. Uh, like the, oh, like, oh, it's just honestly, I, when I'm trying to sleep at night, I think of who I would like to cast as if I'd ever be in a position to cast <laughs> anyone. But ah, we can dream. What else can we do? So before uh, we finish up, I'm really curious now. Have you found that writing historical fiction and again revisiting the Thirty Years' War? One, I asked you this last year as well. Have you mm. real? Have you discovered anything you hadn't in previous engagements with the Thirty Years' War? Have you discovered something that you hadn't last time? And also, how has writing historical fiction affected the way you? Right, not only your podcast, but also, have you found it affecting your academic work? Yeah, both really good questions. And they're actually kind of conveniently tied together because what this has really taught me, and I know this sounds like Captain Obvious, but because my narrative focus on conflicts or events in history through the podcast or whatever, it's normally not on a very molecular level. I'm not normally looking at the individual soldiers or anything. If I'm looking at individuals, they're individuals who made a lot of ripples, shall we say. So I think in in looking at this from Matthew Locke's perspective and looking at the Thirty Years' War from that point and seeing things on the ground, even seeing how things are for like the average soldier or peasant or what have you during this period and seeing how utterly miserable it was... And I think it just kind of struck me a little while ago, like we're so used to seeing like images of like refugees and like images of people in like dire conditions now, uh, like on the TV and that kind of thing. But that those kind of sites would have been commonplace in person if you were wandering around anywhere in kind of central northern Germany in the 1620s and 30s. So 
I think it brings it back home, the human cost. I mean, like, it's estimated, and they can't be completely certain, but it's estimated that as many as 8 million people overall died. And most of those deaths were from disease and, like, starvation during the Thirty Years' War. So remembering that human cost and then remembering the kind of human aspect of it in my studies as well. So when I'm talking about national honor for my PhD and I'm reading a newspaper article, I'm not just thinking like, oh, these views are interesting. I'm also like, who wrote this though? And like, what position was this person in? Do you know what I mean? So it it kind of makes it, it, it's kind of grounded my, my whole approach really. I consider the human element much more carefully. And I hope that doesn't mean I was cold in the past. It wasn't like I was unfeeling. I just I just hadn't got the the imagination really because I hadn't explored it as much as I have done now with Matthew Locke. So really it's been an incredible experience being able to do that and being able to justify looking at like because I've read those articles about social conditions and dire economic straits and everything, but it's only when you have to like imagine how they would have looked yourself and you consult sources like people complaining about how they have to eat bark because there was nothing else to eat. And like imagining what that would have not just been like, but what it would have looked like. Because I think we're very, even though this is on a podcast, we're very visual as people. So it's it's one thing to read about the Thirty Years' War, but to see people suffering in wartime during that conflict on this in the same way and for the same reasons that people suffer through war now, I think that's kind of very profound in in a way. And I really do want to kind of dig into that deeper. Hopefully, listeners have heard all everything you've said and are now eager to get their hands on a copy of Matchlock. Where can they find it? Well, that's a great question. There, like, essentially, you can get it everywhere. I've, I'm what they call publishing wide, so that means I'm not just on Amazon. I'm also on the usual places, uh, whether it's Barnes and Noble or Kobo or Apple Books or Google Play, that kind of thing. I'm on essentially everything. If you want to buy it from me directly, you can go to matchlockbooks.com. You can only buy the audio or the you can only buy the ebook. The audiobook is coming out in the future, let's hope. That's a that's a story for another day. But uh And are you voicing the audiobook? That's that's essentially the story. I'm not sure if I can get away with all the different accents and characters. I would love to voice it myself for obvious reasons and not just because it would save me a whole ton of money. But I just... Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to the Game of Thrones audiobook for the second one and I'm going to see how that narrator pulls it off and then I might have a better idea of how I would actually pull it off because... I don't know. I, I It would be a challenge, but maybe it's just something else I can teach myself and, and learn from. I mean, it would definitely be cool to have all three. Well, thank you very much, Zach, for coming on. This has been a great chat. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure. And honestly, I could keep going about the 30 Years War for another 45 minutes. I mean, there's no stopping me sometimes. <laughs> well, thank you again. And I look forward to having you on next year for your next book. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm... Uh, I, provisionally now at the moment the second book is supposed to be out before christmas so you are having a laugh no i'm serious and then the third one will be out in spring at some point and then i might sleep then i'm not sure you're not when you said oh you might have like 20 books out in a few years i thought i thought you were exaggerating but apparently not no three a year is the minimal goal (laughs) good grief well on that (laughs) note thank you very much zach and i'll leave you to get back to writing even more Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.